My name is Melinda Ferguson. I'm the publisher, compiler, and one of the authors in Lockdown Extended. So the whole thing kind of started a few days before the 27th of March, which was the day South Africa went into lockdown, its first lockdown. And overnight, I literally found myself trying to figure out how so many of us creatives, writers, poets, actors, singers, publishers, musicians, painters, artists, all of us had literally become irrelevant according to the COVID-19 lockdown regulations in South Africa. So by the end of March, my first response against creative suicide, Lockdown, the Corona Chronicles, was published as an e-book after 17 of us, under my benevolent whip of course, got this book together in just seven days. About 24 hours later, I was sitting now bored at my table, withdrawing, I think, from this kind of insane creative surge, when I decided to make a wish list of authors I'd love to collaborate with, hoping that maybe four, five of them would come along with me on a new book adventure. So I started approaching them one by one, some of top, top South African authors, some people that I'd been admiring for years, and amazingly, all 30 of the authors who I approached decided to do the book. The podcast that you're about to listen to includes 17 of these authors. Pumla Dineer Kola, Sisonke Misimang, Lebo Mashile, Jonathan Anser, Sarah Jane Makwala King, Kaid Langa, Rala Zanopoulos, Pumlani Picoli, Stephen Sidley, Hagen Engler, Rachel Khrief, Dave Miller, Sia Kumalo, Ismail Lagadian, Lagadian if you'd like, Anne Wenzel and Melusi Shabalala, and of course, me, Melinda Ferguson. Kick back and enjoy. My name is Lebo Mashile. I am a poet, I'm a performer, I'm a published author, I'm a public speaker, um, an actress, and a producer. My essay is called Lockdown, No Laughing Matter, and I am honored by the fact that Melinda Ferguson has chosen my essay to open this incredible, incredible book. Um, I've received wonderful feedback about my work. It's it's amazing. It's thrilling. I'm completely delighted by it. And I would love to share an excerpt from my piece with you now. Artists sense what is percolating in the air and give birth to it. Historically, revolutions have often been fed by major artistic shifts. There's a symbiotic relationship between politics and art. In this light, naturally, COVID-19 hit the creative economy first and viciously. Social isolation meant no more gatherings of over 50 people, which meant no more gigs. This was as true for South Africa as it had become for the rest of the planet. An entire creative value chain of performers, sound and lighting technicians, stage managers, costume designers, set designers and builders, ushers, ticket sellers, grips, stagehands, producers, writers, publicists, agents, 
arts managers, theater staff, festival programmers, eventing companies, administrators, caterers, decor suppliers, drivers, and every independent vendor selling programs, merchandise, chicken wings, chips, and burvos rolls outside the gigs was out of work and out of luck. I immediately went into scramble mode, chasing payments for outstanding invoices. This quickly escalated to fight mode as I confronted an agent who wanted to hold on to my money for their own cash flow and the awful payment processes of corporates whose bureaucratic financial systems have kept a loosely fixed noose around my neck. This exposed a toxic truth about the way that many freelancers, artists, and self-employed individuals work. At any given time, there is a wad of money in the form of unpaid invoices for services rendered that hangs just above my head like a cartoon thought bubble. I can see this money, but I can't touch it. I know it's my money because I earned it, but it's not in my account. I've grown accustomed to the relentless sea of vendor forms and supplier database forms that I am invariably confronted with when I am requesting my money from public and private sector clients. I compensate by chasing more work in order to make up for the shortfall of cash in the interim. This is the treadmill that I've been on for my entire career. There has never been time to examine the systemic nature of its abuse. Cocorella destroyed my gigs. Now I have the time. I'm Sisonke Msimang, author of Always Another Country and the Resurrection of Winnie Mandela. And I have written an essay entitled Homesick, Notes on Lockdown, as part of Lockdown Extended, the new book. So I guess I wrote this essay because it felt like a personal challenge. So often when I'm writing, I'm doing so from a place of certainty. Uh, Often my work is about exploring what lies underneath the surface, trying to expose those aspects of our life that are not obvious. Um, And when the lockdown happened, I really struggled with that sense of certainty, with the self-assuredness of my voice. I think Often when people are reading you as a writer, they want you to know. They want you to have the confidence of a voice. I think that's really important. Um, And for the first time in a long time, I was faced with a subject around which I knew nothing and with a strong sense of uncertainty. And so in many ways, I wanted to write an essay that conveyed this, um, that conveyed my emotions and my anxieties and my fears and my concerns and my hopes without pretending that I knew because I think writing from a place of unknowing is the only thing that any of us can do at this particular moment. Uh, So here's an excerpt. I am imagining that, like me, many of you are worried about how it will work, what it will mean to be in the house together all the time with those you love or no longer love or wish you could love more. Forgive me if I do not yet see quarantine as an opportunity to be grateful or as a time to slow down. There is a long list of inspirational books friends have shared, but I cannot concentrate enough to read anything meaningful. These are the first words I have been able to write and they have come slowly and with great uncertainty. Everything I have read so far in the news has been about keeping the children busy and taking time to breathe and there have been 
far too few policymakers and experts who are concerned with how the experience of lockdown will be complicated by the state of being poor or a migrant or a woman or a person who is also black or brown in some combination of these things in societies that are hostile to all of these identities. For women who live in homes where the air is thick with tension, where the wrong move results in days of pain, this time will be interminable. I do not need to tell you to have a plan because you always have a plan for escape. You always have an eye on survival. I could tell you that this crisis presents an opportunity, but that, that would be a lie. So perhaps it is best only to say that this crisis presents a crisis, and I hope you make it to the other side of it alive. Loss in a Time of Coronavirus by Kaya Zanga Long, long ago, I will one day tell my children and grandchildren about the great war the world faced in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2020. I will tell them how the whole country was under house arrest. Every chance I get, I will never fail to tell them about the struggle credentials I earned in the 20s. They will know that soldiers and policemen patrolled the streets. And if you were seen so much as jogging or walking your ugly dog on the streets, you would be arrested. Then I will take out my iPhone, which to them will be like reaching for a telegram. And I will show them the pictures of the 50-something-year-old white woman in Greenpoint fleeing from the police as she was being arrested for walking her little white poodle. I will tell them how for the first time we were all truly equal in the liberation struggle against the great unseen virus, black and white. Our ancestor, Mandela, was doing the Madiba jive in his final resting place in Gono. My name is Melinda Ferguson. The piece I'm reading for Lockdown Extended is my chapter called A Cursory Look at Hoarding, Huxley, Freedom, Starvation and Sheep. My travelling case has remained unpacked for over four weeks in the lounge. It glares at me daily as I slipper shuffle past, me still usually in pyjamas at noon. It was packed for a trip to Joburg two days before the state of disaster was announced. I haven't had the energy to unzip it of its contents. It's not due to straightforward laziness. It has more to do with ennui, even nostalgia. The packed maroon Thule bag is a reminder that there once was a world I inhabited where I actually left the house. It reminds me of a former life, BC before Corona, BL before lockdown. I miss my hometown Josie and my two sons. I haven't left these walls in the past 20 days. There was a time I flew in airplanes, often four times a week on work-related travel. 
book events, author meetings, car launches up and down in the sky. I said I cared for the planet, but I had no problem with carbon-spewing planes. The sky is eerie now, empty, like a disemboweled whale, tomb silent. Winter is coming. How will the poor and, ho and homeless survive? I was homeless once, begging for money for drugs at traffic lights. I know what May, June, July feels like in South Africa when you have no roof, when you are starving. But my belly has been full for over two decades, so the Hunger Games are now only imaginary. As I survey my fridge packed full, cottage cheese, sirloin, free range, butternut ostrich steak, anchovies, spinach, courgettes, kale, feta, halloumi, hummus. The cupboards heave full. Tins, tins, tins. Tuna, olives, coconut cream, chickpeas, tomatoes, pasta, lentils, rice. So many, many tins of tomatoes, I could make a soup for the world with all these fucking nightshades. On the one occasion I do leave the house, armed in a mask and blue surgical gloves, I wait in line outside Woolworths. These days they only let 20 people in at a time. Three weeks earlier, we're jostled shoulder to shoulder, panic trolleys full, breathing, coughing, seething, close, virus oblivious. On this day, now out of the house, we are suspicious, eyes downcast, socially appropriately distant. The virus has othered us. My name is Pumla Dinewakola. I wrote a chapter for Lockdown Extended called Unmovement, Human Rights and COVID-19. I will read briefly from the middle of that essay. For many middle-class South Africans of my generation, the COVID-19 lockdown is the first time we have had to think seriously about confinement on a daily basis post apartheid. We have imagined that, at least physically, we live out Sobukwe's dream, even as we punctuate this with calls for the return of the land. Sociologist Mamadi Matlaku says this virus is forcing us to think about our vulnerabilities, individually and collectively. We have to confront many of the lies and accompanying brutalities that we rely on to maintain our tenuous comforts. She pointed this out as many of our mostly academic colleagues clung to the false confidence offered by zero positive corona tests in the Eastern Cape at the time. Intellectually, they knew, like we did, that testing numbers were so low that we simply did not know how many cases there likely were. Even this false confidence did not last long before a woman from our city who had traveled to Germany tested positive, and then another, and so it went. Good day, my name is Hagen Engler. I'm a writer and a musician and spoken word performer out of Johannesburg. 
I've uh, written a piece for Lockdown Extended called After This, and here follows an excerpt from that piece. The levels, the factions, the bourgeois, the Brits, the rent-seeking means of production, the shits, the workers, the people, the civics, the staff. Somehow through the hatred, there's always a chance. We're all in our lounges, our bedrooms alone, in person, in mind or in vibe, all at home, still hoping and scheming regarding our phones, maybe still Even now, at this 11th hour, there's still some hope for us. Maybe we can still get back what we had. Despite what was said and the things that were done, we'll forgive and acknowledge, talk straight and make up. Sure, there's therapy, counseling and stuff. There's a lot that needs fixing, but there's enough. Good things still to work on. There's enough. That comment, that like, We went to WhatsApp and we stayed there all night. If we can do that, then nurture each other through all of this shite. The things that were said when we actively tried to dismantle the things we built up over time. When we set off that bomb of damage and pride and we twisted the knife and we screamed and we cried and we said all the things we'd kept all inside. I had to get drunk to build up the bile that let out those things that I said on that night. But still, here we are, reaching out on device. If we can do that, then we're really just mice, little ants on this earth. Sir Collins's vibe. If you can allow me, if I can reach out through my shame, one more text one silly pun, then maybe, just maybe, capital's done. Maybe the chapter can end. Season one, Breaking Bad, Tiger King, Master of None. Kumlani Pikoli, a written a story called great quarantine yeah it's about a bunch of fucking teenagers eh uh it's like yo i don't know and they stuck at the one oak's house now you're supposed to go to this other oak's house supposed to catch a hot rain on the day because the one oak's parents went away on the day of the like of like the announcement and then this one oak's like cousin who's hot like it's like y'all wait for me ex so then by the time they catch the fucking uber they get to the train station and it's locked down it's like finished it's like half past nine train but then it's a good thing because apparently oaks were coughing there and then now oaks go back home and they just have to like survive you know it's just like the three of them and then the parents can't come through because now, like, fuck, they're like, oaks can't be on the fucking highway or whatever. And then the other oaks, parents, they're there, just like overseas, trying to be airlines and shit. Now these oaks are just like, doing this, like, whole COVID thing, you know? And it's just like, these fucking teenagers just chilling there in the fucking house, and then like the food runs out like 
and like oaks are ransacking shit, you know? It's just like fucking, just fucking oaks everywhere, fucking, fucking everything up. But these guys know the suburbs. And they've been playing lots of video games and they've got like a VPN connection or some shit. Um, fucking oaks are just like, yo, we're just gonna have to fucking MacGyver, you know? Like they have to like fucking survive, bro. And these oaks are just like out there. Hi, my name is Stephen Boyke Sidley. I'm a novelist and a playwright and a columnist. I decided to write a short story for this collection in which I imagine a setting in which there is a couple trapped in an unhappy marriage and now trapped in a small home together. And then the added layer of a small and lonely boy, their son, in the house with them. The dynamics of a deeply unhappy marriage are fertile ground for much storytelling, but the added dimension of physical confinement gave me new material to work with, particularly as each member of this family are unhappy in different ways and each looks desperately for their own methods of lightening their load and the consequences that each one of them faces. The swing. A man sits in a small house on a small plot in a part of town once described by some as run down, but now graced with a much more dignified moniker, working class, with its freighted euphemisms of virtue. He watches his wife stoutened by calories and grief as she cleans the dishes, back turned towards his stare. He wonders who she is. He wonders if he ever loved her. Never mind, he does not now. He heads into a small liquor cabinet below the window and surveys the thinned pickings. He selects a cheap vodka, glances briefly at its diminished contents, lifts the bottle and empties it in a single angry swallow. He wishes he could go out. He wishes he could fortify with friends and beer and insult and swagger. But he is here with her and the child, the one who once had a sister. He sits down heavily. She continues to wash slowly, deliberately, with care. She holds each glass up to the light, inspecting it for unattended blemishes, much like she used to look at him as she sought to smooth out his rough spots. Now she doesn't seem to look at all. And so now I invite you, listener, please to go out and buy our book, Lockdown Extended, and find out what happens to these characters. Hello, Zanibonani. My name is Umelusi Shabalala. I am an author, an ad man, and a creative entrepreneur. My piece is called Lockdown Letters of Utando and Other Shenanigans. It's, um, the piece deals with isolation 
And this is delivered through love letters between lovers separated by the lockdown. It, it's ridiculous because the lovers themselves are ridiculous people. Um, but it gets across the point that we do need company as human beings and we do need each other. Thank you. Shab. My name is Jonathan Anser. I'm a journalist and author, and for the last five years, I've been embroiled in the world of espionage, writing books about apartheid spies, anti-apartheid spies, Russian spies, double agents, and one person who may have even been a triple agent. I grew up in a traditional Jewish family. We weren't religious, but the holidays were important to us, and each year we marked Passover with the ceremonial feast known as the Seder where we told the story of the Exodus, recited the ten plagues, ate matzah, and demanded that Pharaoh let my people go. Ultimately, Passover is a tale of liberation, but this year a tiny enemy has enslaved the whole world. No one is free. So, with the plague of all plagues hanging over us, my family decided to have a Zoom Seder, which is what I write about. The story also explains why matzah is the ultimate lockdown food. Hi, my name is Anne Wenzel and I've written a piece for Lockdown Extended called The World Through COVID-19 Coloured Glasses. Um, if my voice sounds funny, it's because I'm lying down as I'm doing this, because I was kind of lying down as I was writing it, because I mostly felt like lying down. Um, and I'm lying down in my picture. <laughs> um, I am the night editor of the Daily Maverick in my day job. And so a lot of that is looking at a lot of what's happening around the world. And a lot of that is really scary. So I basically wrote about how all this information gets stuck in your brain and then starts to work its way out. Um, and happily now we are almost out of, of lockdown. So that's some good news and uh, the book's a good read. I wrote a chapter for the Corona Chronicles, which I'm afraid says more about me than about the killer virus. My name is Ismail Lachadin. The chapter I wrote took more courage to prepare than I anticipated. But I stayed with it and let the act of writing shape what I produced. What emerged was the intersect between the public and the personal. It is indeed difficult, if at all possible, to live life without all those things that bind us to society, that make us or that break us and that force us to start all over again, to try and give meaning to our lives. The virus has become the single most important issue in our lives today. It determines what we do, where we go and what plans we make, make for tomorrow, next week or next month. 
I suffered a degrading loss in the months before the virus arrived. It drove me to a type of event horizon that, once I crossed, its whole meaning would have been lost. I was satisfied with that. I had lost meaning to her anyway. The virus pulled me back unsentimentally, as if to say, I will decide when you fall into that black hole. Now let me read the passage, the opening passage of the chapter I wrote. The morning sun hits me straight in the eyes as I lay in bed. I turn to the right. In a sleepy haze, I see the picture of a smiling face in the nightstand beside the pictures of my mother and of my niece. I turn away to face left. The black coat hangs on the wall of my bedroom like the limp figure of a man dangling on the gallows, hung to death, his arms hanging lifeless by his sides. The silvery buttons at the top of the turned-up collar are glazed over eyes like those of a dead fish. I turn away and bury my face in the pillows. I pull the duvet over my head. It's dark. I can't breathe. I get out of bed. That's the end of the paragraph. But this is what the virus has become. It will decide what hurts more. Her departure or the destruction the virus will cause in my chest. Right now, the specter of the virus lurks over me, over us all. I remain for now dangled on the edge of that black hole into which my entire universe will collapse and where it will have lost all meaning. All I can do is wait. Hi, my name is Rochelle, and my little piece for Lockdown Extended is called The Brilliant Unimaginable of Isolation. I know nothing about rugby and have no desire to learn more. I still associate it with braifleisbellied, moustached male relatives from the past. But come the World Cup, with a bright green field flying below Sia Kulisi's feet, I yearn for a small fiery particle of this brilliance. Not his exceptionally talented game skills, but that energy so often admitted by superstar entertainers. I honour these rare people, not only for their performances, but probably more for the years of non-stop repetitive isolated hard work, away from the eyes and shouts of doting admirers like myself. My name is Siakumalo. I wrote the essay titled Piety, Power, Pandemics. In hindsight, I could have titled it... Um, Humanism is to moral philosophy what non-racialism is to critical race theory. Come fight me. But I decided, let's not be so spicy, um, but what it does look at is how power dynamics involve discussions on religion that do not get discussed, just as there was a time when power relations 
involved uh, discussions on race that were not mentioned because we ostensibly lived in a non-racial society. So I argue that the way we've spoken about the things we don't speak about in power in power relations, including things like religion, um, still impact the way privilege plays out today when there's a pandemic and there's a lockdown. A Quest to Give My Apocalypse Some Meaning by Rala Zinopoulos I really don't want to flippantly Pollyanna through the horror of this moment. It is a time of great fear. But I do believe that there is something complacent, lazy even, about cynicism. I have this theory. People always remember where they were when the planes went into the Twin Towers. Most South Africans remember where we were on June the 16th, 1976. Older people remember the assassination of JFK and Martin Luther King. I think there is a reason beyond the obvious trauma of the moment. I believe that the shock and horror of these moments draw us together and compel us to rise above our petty differences. Perhaps it's Freud's theory of the narcissism of minor differences in evidence. There is very little as powerful as human connection. We are told that until they learn the word I, toddlers do not perceive any difference between themselves and their environment. I recently learned of an actual cognitive phenomena called the overview effect. This is when astronauts, looking down at our planet from space, experience a shift in their awareness, becoming overwhelmed and awed by the Earth's fragility and beauty. Borders between countries blur, and it all becomes one exquisite kingdom. If nothing else, we have seen these last weeks that globally we are deeply and intrinsically connected. And more than anything else in life, human beings crave connection. Every time we fall in love with someone, as a friend, lover or family member, we are aware of the great personal risk, of the inevitable loss. We know that in time, one of us will go. And yet, we continue in our quest to connect. Perhaps that is the profound, sad beauty of the human condition. I learned today of the Jinzai Kura tree, cherry tree. It lives on the grounds of the Jisoji Temple in Japan, and it has blossomed for 2,000 years. What is COVID-19? What are any of our human troubles in a world where a cherry blossom tree can live for 2,000 years? Faith is a verb. Hope is a verb. And both of them are absolutely radical acts of rebellion. When we look back on this age, I believe we will look back on a time of terror, of baking, resilience and industry. A time of poverty, of watching Tiger King and eating. Of transformation, growth, appreciation for things and people we didn't previously acknowledge and ultimately a time of profound universality. Hi, my name is Dave Muller, uh, and my contribution to Lockdown Extended is a story entitled 
the first age of lockdown. Uh, I live near East London. I'm retired and once upon a time I was an architect. So here's the beginning of, of my story. Had we been listening, we would have heard the whine of turbines, the grating of gears, the death rattle of disintegrating bearings. Had we looked, we would have seen that the machinery of our society was grinding against the finite limits of our planet in our helter-skelter, frenetic scramble across her face and with our greedy delving into her guts. But we were deaf and blind. We had not noticed the slow change in timbre and rhythm that altered the joyful chimes accompanying the carefree music of the spheres. We did not perceive the disparities in our world, and therefore we did not heed the tolling of the funeral bell. When we did finally hear and see, and reached out our hand to quieten that awful knell, it was too late. The clapper pendulum of time was swinging, just as it has throughout all eternity. And with an expletive thud, the grasping fingers of humanity were crushed against the brass lip of that cold, dulled bell. And there was silence, and we were wounded. The first age of lockdown had begun. Now in the ensuing silence, if we take our time and listen carefully, we can hear our own panting breaths, the urgent lub-dub heartbeat in our ears, and not that far away, drawing closer, the rasping death rattle, gasps of COVID-19's latest victims. In this abrupt, hardly breathing silence, what should we do? Hi, I'm Sarah Jane King, Cape Talk presenter and author of Killing Caroline and one of the contributors to Lockdown Extended. The piece that I've written for the book is called I Say a Little Prayer and it's quite a contemplative piece um, with me musing about what role prayer and spirituality have in my life and all our lives in dealing with this very strange time that we find ourselves in around the coronavirus pandemic. Um, it's it's a mix of light and dark. Um, when I started writing, it was coming out as a very, almost a comedic piece. Uh, and then the more I explored different ideas within it, it became slightly more serious. So I think the humour is quite dark. Um, and I hope you enjoy it. And here's a little taster of what you can expect. It happened about a year ago before lockdown. I was pregnant and had recently been abandoned by the drug-addled father of my unborn child. I was angry, alone and absolutely terrified. I felt let down by a god I was pretty sure didn't exist but who I would prostrate myself and my swollen belly before on the floor every night begging for the despair to leave me. For years before that, I'd exhausted myself, fruitlessly willing the man whose child I was now carrying to be released from the clutches of a disease that was infecting every cell of our lives. I was spiritually defunct, moribund. My cup did not runneth over. And so I decided that before delivering, I needed deliverance. I asked a friend who I sensed would be able to point me in the right direction. She wears Birkenstocks year-round and won't eat anything with a face. 
She added me to one of the many WhatsApp prayer groups she swore had helped her find her centre and achieve Zen. I gave it a go for a time, but my own Zen was stubbornly AWOL and my centre seemed to be on a shot left, so I stopped praying. I guess I could have removed myself from the group, but for some reason I just didn't. And so, every day during this lockdown, before my eyes are even open, good-hearted souls who seem bafflingly confident in our forthcoming communal redemption continue to demonstrate their indefatigable attempts to save my mortal soul by way of these ecclesiastical tidbits. So I hope you enjoyed the 15 authors from Lockdown Extended talking about their specific pieces in the book. It's a really brilliant book. It's about everything that we're going through at the moment. It's the only kind of book that we've got available right now in terms of e-format. It's available on Amazon. It's available on Kobo. It's available hopefully this week on Take-A-Lot. Amazon, it's about 130 bucks. Kobo, it is a ridiculously low price of 103 rand. Ebooks are really easy to read. They're very easy to read on. You don't have to have a Kindle. You can have a phone. You can have an iPad. You can have a PC. Basically, guys and girls, it is a book, lockdown extended, that you have just got to read. <laughs>